0: Have your Bibles, turn with me to Ezra chapter 10, verses 1 through 5, as we continue with our series, Biblical Defense of Covenanting and the Solemn League and Covenant. Ezra 10 verses one through five. Now, when Ezra had prayed and when he had confessed, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God, there assembled unto him out of Israel a very great congregation of men and women and children, for the people wept very sore. And Shechaniah, the son of Jehiel, One of the sons of Elam answered and said unto Ezra, We have trespassed against our God and have taken strange wives of the people of the land. Yet now there is hope in Israel concerning this thing. Now therefore let us make a covenant with our God to put away all the wives and such as are born of them according to the counsel of my Lord and of those that tremble at the commandment of our God, and let it be done according to the law. Arise, for this matter belongeth unto thee. We also will be with thee. Be of good courage and do it. Then arose Ezra, and made the chief priests, the Levites, and all Israel to swear that they should do according to this word, and they swear. Why spend time preaching and teaching on the subject of national covenanting? What is the relevance of this to us and to our children? Simply stated, God does not forget covenants made with him, even if they were made hundreds of years ago. Consider Israel's national covenant with God and how when the posterity hundreds of years later grossly sinned against that covenant, God specifically declares that he would bring his judgment upon them for breaking the covenant of their fathers. In Jeremiah chapter 11 and verses 9 through 11 we read, Shall I not visit them for these things, saith the Lord? Shall not my soul be avenged on such a nation as this? For the mountains will I take up a weeping and wailing, and for the habitations of the wilderness a lamentation, because they are burned up, so that none can pass through them. Neither can men hear the voice of the cattle, both the fowl of the heavens and the beasts, are fled, they are gone, and I will make Jerusalem heaps and a den of dragons, and I will make the cities of Judah desolate without an inhabitant. Here we see again this uh, the nation that does indeed forsake the covenant of their fathers is one that bears the judgment of the living God. Likewise, go over a couple chapters after that. In Jeremiah 11, verses 9 through 11. And the Lord said unto me, A conspiracy is found among the men of Judah and among the inhabitants of Jerusalem. They are turned back to the iniquities of their forefathers, which refused to hear my words and they went after other gods to serve them. The house of Israel and the house of Judah have broken my covenant which I made with their fathers. Therefore, thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will bring evil upon them, which they shall not be able to escape, and though they shall cry unto me, I will not hearken unto them. You see, Darren, we too should carefully consider Whether we as a church or as a nation have violated sacred and solemn covenants of our forefathers, lest God's holy judgment likewise fall upon us. We are not beyond experiencing, whether as individuals, as families, as a church, or as a nation, the covenant anger of God a covenant-keeping God, a God who does not forget covenants. Consider further another example from the scriptures, the judgment that God brought upon the great Gentile city-state of Tyre when Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, laid it waste after a 13-year siege. Now, why? Why? Why was it laid waste? Why was it laid siege to and destroyed? Well, first, first, as we turn to Amos, chapter 1, verses 6 through 8, we find the first reason. Because Tyre delivered to Edom Israel's refugees who were fleeing from Syrian captivity. In Amos chapter 1, verse 9 and 10, we read, Thus saith the Lord, for three transgressions of Tyrus, and for four, I will not turn away the punishment thereof, because they delivered up the whole captivity to Edom. And then in verse 10, but I will send a fire on the wall of Tyrus, which shall devour the palaces thereof. You see, this was the same cruelty committed by Gaza, a city of the Philistines, against the Israelites. The same thing is said concerning them in Amos 1, 6-8. Thus saith the Lord, for three transgressions of Gaza, and for four, I will not turn away the punishment thereof, because they carried away captive, the whole captivity, to deliver them up to Edom. But I will send a fire on the wall of Gaza, which shall devour the palaces thereof. And so the first reason why God speaks of punishment being poured out upon Tyre is because of the cruelty that they had shown to Israel. When Israel was fleeing, trying to find refuge from the Syrians, the the people, the king of Tyre and the people of Tyre took the Israelites and rather than giving them safety and giving them a place of refuge, they took them and delivered them over to the Edomites, a cruel people, to destroy them. That's the first reason. But there is a second sin that further aggravates the cruelty committed by Tyre against the Israelites. What is it? What is the second sin? Tyre obstinately, according to Amos 1, verse 9, Tyre obstinately broke the brotherly covenant that was made nearly 200 years earlier between King Solomon and King Hiram of Tyre. Notice in Amos 1, 9, Thus saith the Lord, for three transgressions of Tyrus, and for four, I will not turn away the punishment thereof. First of all, because they delivered up the whole captivity to Edom. Second, and remembered not the brotherly covenant. The city-state of Tyre did not remember the brotherly covenant that had been established between Tyre, a heathen nation, and Israel a covenant of peace between the two nations and the kings their their official representatives Hiram and Solomon turn with me to First kings 5:12 1 kings 5:12 where we see this covenant established between these two kings as official representatives of their nations And the Lord gave Solomon wisdom as he promised him. And there was peace between Hiram and Solomon, and they too made a league together, a covenant together. And in 1 Kings 9.13, Hiram appeals to Solomon by, by calling him a brother. A brother because of this covenant of peace that was made between them, Dear ones, here we see God's judgment brought upon succeeding generations of Tyre for failing to keep a national treaty with Israel, a treaty of peace which bound not only the king and the generation that made the covenant of peace with Solomon and Israel, but which bound generations. Hundreds of years later, a covenant of peace between these nations. Now, dear ones, if a civil league of peace between two nations is so binding that God's judgment falls upon the heathen nation that breaks that covenant, how much more? Will God's judgment fall upon the posterity of nations that break covenants made directly with God himself and not simply with one another, as was the solemn week covenant? Yes, dear ones, we see in Scripture time and time again that God does not forget national covenants. He judges those nations that treat them with contempt. However, in order for those national covenants to be binding, they must, in the first place, be lawful in their content, which brings us to the first main point today. National covenants, in their content, must be agreeable to God's law. And that is the substance of our text In Ezra chapter 10, let Let's turn back there again, Ezra chapter 10, and I would focus upon this particular phrase in verse 3, at the end of verse 3. Concerning this covenant that they made as a nation, a nation that had returned from exile... It says at the end, and let it be done according to the law. Let this covenant be done according to God's law. Let the content of it be in agreement with the law of God. There was no covenant, oath, Or vow is binding upon anyone if the specific content of it is not morally agreeable to God's law. For we cannot bind ourselves or others to sin against God. It is not a lawful covenant if it binds us or others to sin against God, to break his law. Truth in that which is sworn is essential to the binding nature of a covenant, even as we see was the case in the covenant instituted by Ezra between God and Israel. In that particular covenant, let it be according to the law. Well, why was this covenant instituted here at the time of Ezra? Well, because of the pollution of Israel with the religions of the nations round about it through intermarrying with those nations, those godless nations, as we see in Ezra chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, where it says, Now when these things were done, the princes came to me, saying, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the people of the lands doing according to their abominations, even of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken of their daughters for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy seed have mingled themselves with the people of those lands. Yea, the hand of the princes and rulers have been chief in this trespass. You see, this was strictly forbidden by God's law in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 2 through 4, to to intermarry with these surrounding nations. Not so much because to marry someone from a different nation is in and of itself sinful but it was the immorality the idolatry the the different religion of those particular nations that god says would then become a part of those marriages when two people holding different convictions as to religious principles unite together if they are both going to hold those religious principles uh, strictly, there is going to be all-out war. If they are going to be united together, someone is going to have to compromise in order to live together, which is going to bring down the truth to to the lowest common denominator. That is not the way we should stand for truth. And that's why God speaks of here prohibiting, forbidding Israel to intermarry with other nations who have different religious convictions and principles than that of Israel. And you'll recall that this was the sad consequence that befell King Solomon, the wisest mere man that ever lived. In 1 Kings 11, verses 1 through 8, it says very clearly that he married these various women, and many, many of them from all of these various countries and nations around the world who held different religious principles and convictions than himself. And he, it says there, that his heart was turned away
1: from the Lord
0: his God, because he married these various women. And he set up these various images and these various gods throughout Jerusalem to honor the gods of his wives. Solomon fell into a great apostasy, even one who was called and said to be the wisest mere man who ever lived. In the scripture, God makes that statement concerning Solomon. And if Solomon, dear ones, could fall into such a sin, let none of us for a moment think that we cannot fall into the same sin. If we are not careful, if we do not honor the Lord, if we do not watch our steps and our paths, if we do not watch who we have that familiar fellowship with, if we begin to just say, it really doesn't matter what others believe, they call themselves Christians, they call themselves or they attend various Christian churches, it really doesn't matter what they believe, we will find that our, that our uh, faith is being compromised. And we will eventually uh, find that in order to tolerate the convictions of our spouse, and we'll have to give up our own if there's going to be peace in the home. because if both adamantly adhere to those, there won't be peace. It will be an all-out war all of the time. Those kinds of uh, religious principles that are contrary to one another cannot peacefully coexist unless people are willing to give them up. And if that's what and if that's how strong our convictions are that we can simply give them up, in order to meet someone of the opposite gender, to be married, to have children, what's going to happen to our children? What happened in Israel at the time of Ezra is that it says that the holy seed have mingled themselves. The children have followed in the paths of the parents and the holy seed have been compromised. The seed that were dedicated to God The seed that belonged to God by way of the covenant, by way of circumcision, had been polluted and corrupted as a result. Let us learn, dear ones, from these examples to avoid even the the sins that seem least. That we reap not the pain and the agony that Solomon and that Israel reaped. Now, note carefully that the covenant established by Ezra was made, as we said, according to God's law. Again in Ezra 10 3 and let it be done according to the law. Covenants that are contrary to the law of God are not lawful covenants and do not bind the moral person, whether it be an individual moral person or a nation of individuals that form one moral person. As we see in the case of Herod's sinful oath in Mark 6 verse 26, there you see that Herod engaged himself in an oath to give to this the daughter of the queen, was dancing in front of him, whatever she asked. And what she wanted was the head of John the Baptist once she had finished dancing before Herod. And though he did not want to do so, the scripture says he did so because of the oath that he had taken. Now, having made a sinful oath of that nature, where there weren't any conditions placed upon that. But whatever you want, even to part of his kingdom, you can have it. Was he obligated to, once he heard that it was the life of John the Baptist, was he obligated to keep a simple oath? Of course not. He shouldn't have made it in the first place. It was simple to make it in the first place. But having made it, even if he invoked God's name, it was not a binding obligation, obligation because the content of it was, was contrary to the moral law of God. And so he should have said, that was a wicked oath that I had taken. I renounce it. It is null and void because it should never have been made in the first place. But rather than doing so, because he was embarrassed, he felt that he had to do so because others around him heard what he had said, he went ahead and murdered a godly man, simply to fulfill the oath that he had made, and to save face in front of others. And likewise, a sinful oath that we uh, another simple oath is in Acts chapter 23, verses 12 through 14, where uh, Jews bound themselves to kill Paul. They said that they would not eat until they had slain Paul. And again... Because of the, the content of this particular oath, it being contrary to the law of God, it is of no binding nature. They should again have said, this was a wicked oath, God forgive me. I repent for having taken such an oath. But rather than that, they did not renounce it. They did not, they did not uh, say that it was wrong or sinful. Now, they were not successful in slaying Paul. Uh, but they certainly were uh, successful in a way uh, of bringing him before the magistrates, which eventually led him to appealing to Caesar. And so they were certainly, uh, human, from a human perspective, responsible for much of the uh, grief and sorrow that Paul experienced. But nevertheless, Again, we see that this was an immoral oath. It was it was uh, not one that should have been made because it was contrary to the law of God. And likewise, with a national covenant, as one looks at a national covenant and reads it, if there is that which is morally disagreeable to the law of God, it cannot bind. However, if what is in it is morally agreeable to the law of God, it is a lawful covenant, a lawful national covenant. And it engages the persons who are present, and it also engages the posterity who are not present to fulfill it as long as there is a posterity. Note as well the emphasis upon swearing in the name of the God of truth. Again, emphasizing that all of our covenants should be based upon truth as it is revealed in the word of God. In Isaiah 65 verses 15 and 16. And ye shall leave your name for a curse unto my chosen. Should maybe just before continuing give a little bit of background. Here, the prophet Isaiah is, is speaking against the generation that is then living. A corrupt generation. And he says in speaking to them, And ye shall leave your name for a curse. You are a cursed generation. Unto my chosen, there is going to come in the future a chosen generation who will follow him, follow God, who will love the Lord their God. And so they will leave their name for a chosen generation in the future. Uh, Isaiah continues, For the Lord God shall slay thee, that generation, and call his servants, that is, that future generation, by another name. It was, again, very common when God blessed a person, he changed his name, Abraham, uh, from Abram to Abraham, Jacob to Israel. And so to change his name was to speak of a time of blessing that was to come upon that future generation of Israel, which is the calling of the Jews, when all Israel shall be saved, which we yet look forward to. at the dawning of the millennial period. And verse 16 says, of Isaiah 65, that he who blesseth himself in the earth shall bless himself in the God of truth. And he that sweareth in the earth shall swear by the God of truth, because the former troubles are forgotten and because they are hid from mine eyes. Notice, and he that sweareth in the earth Certainly that, includes, that uh, includes Israel, but I would say it's, it's, the language seems to be much more universal. Whoever he may be who swears in all of the earth, that he must swear in, in the God of truth. That to swear in the name of God is to swear by the truth that God has revealed. You cannot be swearing truly in the name of God if you are swearing something that is contrary to his truth. And likewise, we read in Jeremiah chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. If thou wilt return, O Israel, saith the Lord, return unto me, And if thou wilt put away thine abominations out of my sight, then shalt thou not remove. And thou shalt swear, the Lord liveth. Now notice, in truth, in judgment, and in righteousness. And the nations shall bless themselves in him, and in him shall they glory. As Israel does Swear in the name of God, the Lord liveth, and as they swear in truth, in judgment that is in justice and in righteousness, it will have likewise the effect upon all of the nations of the world. When they return to the Lord their God, they will go forth and there will be such a mighty outpouring of God's spirit when they Come to the Lord Jesus Christ as a nation and swear the Lord liveth, that it will have its impact upon all of the nations. But notice again that same uh, idea that's presented that thou shalt swear the Lord liveth in truth. In truth. Lawful national covenants are always covenants that are morally agreeable to God's word. And dear ones, in a future sermon, it will be my task to demonstrate that the Solemn League and Covenant is such a national covenant. It is agreeable to the law of God, to the moral truths that we find in God's Word. The second and last point main point in the sermon today, as we continue to, uh, to consider various aspects of national covenanting and seeking to understand what faithful and lawful national covenants are. I would make this point. Lawful national covenants have an intrinsic obligation. And I'll explain what that means, if that's unfamiliar, unfamiliar to you, but let me say it again. Lawful national covenants have an intrinsic obligation. Turn with me to... 2 Kings 23, verse 3. 2 Kings 23, verse 3. Now this is a covenant at the time of King Josiah, a king who brought great reformation to the church and nation of Israel. Notice uh, this verse, what is said here, <clears throat> and uh, I'll be reading it at this point, and then we'll, as we work through this, this point, uh, come back to this verse. But these are the words that are found in Second Kings twenty-three three, <clears throat> and the king stood by a pillar and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and to keep his co- uh, commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all their heart and with all their soul to perform the words of this covenant that were written in this book. And all the people stood to the covenant. <coughs> now note in Second 2 Kings 23.3, that King Josiah bound the people by way of a national covenant to that to which they were already bound by God's law. Namely, to obey God's law. <coughs> you see in verse 3, that what did they bind themselves to? To keep his commandments. Were they not already bound to keep his commandments? Of course. God's law binds them already to, God's moral law binds all people to keep his commandments. So, if they were already bound to keep his commandments, why did they take a covenant to keep his commandments? You see, there is a distinction made here between the obligation to obey God's law and a binding further, an obligation further to bind oneself to obey God's law by way of a covenant. The two are inseparable. Where you have a covenant, you are going to have a covenant, as we said in the first point, that is agreeable to the law of God. And so the two are inseparable, but they are distinguishable, one from the other. Covenants are lawful, as we said because they are agreeable to God's moral law. However, lawful national covenants bind and obligate the original covenanters and their posterity to obedience, not only because, listen closely, not only because of the moral content of the covenant, that it's agreeable to the law of God, but also because a lawful covenant is itself binding. There is an added obligation in a lawful covenant. Let me explain. The moral law of God always binds the moral person of an individual or of a nation regardless of time or circumstances. For example, no person or no nation is ever exempt from the first commandment. Thou shalt have no other gods before me, Whether you're the magistrate, whether you're a minister, regardless of your occupation, regardless of your age, regardless of your status, your wealth or riches, no one is ever exempt from that commandment, that moral commandment, thou shalt have no other gods before me, whether it be a single individual or whether it be a moral person, collectively considered, that is a nation or a church or any society, a family. This commandment always prohibits following other gods in our life by making anyone or anything more important to us than God himself, by serving anyone or anything before God himself. By loving anyone or anything more than God himself. By acknowledging the authority of anyone over the authority of God himself. Or by worshipping anyone or anything other than God himself. Thus, the federal constitution of the United States engages This nation, in national idolatry, when it states that the supreme law of the land is the Constitution itself, a law of man's mere authority, rather than stating that the supreme law of the land is the Bible, a law of God's authority. If then all nations are already bound to worship the triune God of the Bible alone and to love and serve God supremely by the first commandment, why should a nation also bind itself by way of a national covenant to do what is it is already bound to do in the first commandment? Well, it's because. There is an added obligation, or what is called an intrinsic obligation, in the act of covenanting whereby we voluntarily engage ourselves to do what God's law already requires us to do. In lawful national covenant, we acknowledge that God's law binds us to be God's people in trusting, loving, and obeying Christ and his word, in accordance with Psalm 2, where in Psalm 2, you recall, the nations, through their national leaders and representatives, are commanded to kiss the sun. They're commanded to kiss the sun. That's a figure of speech of basically saying that we honor and worship The son of God. We worship Jesus Christ in his mediatorial rule as the anointed one. Set upon Mount Zion as God's official prince. and mediatorial king. We worship him. We kiss the son. That's what all are required to do by way of God's law. The first commandment requires them to kiss the son. In other words, God's law requires and binds each nation to kiss the sun. A nation acknowledges and owns this obligation for itself, however, when it it engages itself by way of entering into a national covenant with God. In that national covenant, they basically take what God requires of them and they say, we will be what God says we ought to be. We will be God's people. We will kiss the sun. We voluntarily engage ourselves and own that as our obligation. Even though, again, we're already obliged to do so, we own it as our obligation. Let's consider another example. There's always a binding obligation upon all men to tell the truth according to the ninth commandment. Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. So why does not a court simply remind a person that he or she is bound to tell the truth before testimony is given? Why enough? Why not just remind them, you know, you know that you're supposed to tell the truth here. Why not just remind them of their obligation? Well... Is because there is, dear ones, an added obligation in an oath or covenant that further binds the moral person to do what he or she is already bound to do by God's law. So that, that if one voluntarily binds oneself to tell the truth by way of a lawful oath, should that person lie, he has not only lied and broken the ninth commandment, but he has also perjured himself by breaking a lawful covenant and has taken the name of the Lord God in vain and has broken the third commandment as well. Thus one who might say that he owns just making a a, a brief application here one who might say that he owns the Solemn League and Covenant because he believes the content of the solemn league and covenant to be morally agreeable to the word of God has missed the whole point of the added or intrinsic obligation of that national covenant if he doesn't go any further. It is not simply owning the content of that national covenant to be, to be right and true. It's not simply saying we will take those original documents, the confession of faith, the catechisms, the directory for worship, and form a church government, and we believe those to be agreeable to the word of God. Someone who says that has taken a good step in recognizing those things are included and they are of a moral nature. I would agree with that. But they're simply agreeing with the content but they're not owning that there is a covenant that also binds them. It, it is also necessary, dear ones, to own the national that national covenant, that solemn league and covenant itself to bind all its national posterity as well. For to own the moral context. Without owning the covenant itself, when one is bound as posterity, is to perjure oneself. It is to perjure oneself, because it is to, to believe or not to believe, I should say, that one is bound by that covenant as posterity. It is to, it is to cast that, that whole concept aside, when one is actually the posterity who were included in that covenant. And this, again, uh, we'll seek to demonstrate in a subsequent sermon that indeed the posterity, the national posterity, uh, are included in the, the Solemn League and Covenant being England, Ireland, and Scotland and the, the, the past and present dominions of England. Thus, I would submit, dear ones, that our federal constitution is not only by way of content contrary to God's law. It doesn't mention the name of God. It doesn't mention Jesus Christ and His mediatorial rule over the nations. It doesn't mention. Uh, it doesn't mention the law of God as being the, the supreme law of the land. In fact, those kinds of things were actually discussed in the in the Constitutional Convention, and they explicitly, though having discussed it, chose not to include those things. It wasn't an oversight on their part. They didn't forget it to include those. They consciously chose not to include those things in the federal constitution. And so it's not simply that we disagree with the moral content. That, we believe, was an act of perjury because they, as a moral person, did not own as the posterity, the national posterity proceeding from England, they did not own the faithful lawful covenant of their forefathers, namely the solemn league and covenant. And that, again, is yet to be demonstrated in a future sermon. I ask you, as we draw to a, a close this Lord's Day, another question. Do you think it, that it's important not only to be reminded of your lawful obligations to one another, At your wedding? Do you think it's important not only to be reminded of those obligations that you should love one another, that you should do this, that you should do that to one another, but not to stop there? Or do you think that that's simply sufficient? Or do you believe as with, because of the the solemn and sacred Institution, ordinance of God, being marriage itself instituted by God, that it those types of institutions and ordinances of God do call us to make solemn covenants as well. That has been the position of the church throughout history and of most nations, that promises or covenants are made between those who are betrothed to one another who are to become husband and wife solemn promises and covenants are entered into they're already bound by those obligations why make a promise and a covenant if there's if a covenant is meaningless if a covenant is is basically uh, uh repetitious if, if it's not something that has an added obligation why do so but this is why, because in those solemn covenants, at those times and at those institutions and ordinances appointed by God, we especially own the seriousness of what we are about to do. And we covenant and engage ourselves in a covenant to bind ourselves, voluntarily bind ourselves to these obligations. I'd like to share with you in closing. The story of a covenant breaker. So as to. Give you. Hope. And to give you encouragement. This Covenant Breaker's story is told in Second Chronicles chapter 33. And his name was Manasseh. He was the son of a godly and righteous king, Hezekiah. One of the greatest kings of Judah that God used to bring reformation, covenanted reformation to Judah. And he was a he was a covenant child. He no doubt was circumcised. He no doubt had the promises of God made unto him at his in his circumcision and by way of the proclamation of the gospel to him. And yet he became one of the most wicked and evil kings in all of Judah's history, it says in verse two of Second Chronicles thirty-three, he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord, likened to the abominations of the heathen, whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. And it goes on to list all of the the the, the things that he uh, the wickedness and the abominations that he instituted in Judah from idolatry to witchcraft to wizards. In all of these things, the Lord had told Israel that if they did, he would bring his judgment upon them. And it says in verse 9, chapter 33, verse 9, So Manasseh made Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to err and to do worse than the heathen whom the Lord had destroyed before the children of Israel. And the Lord spake to Manasseh and to his people, but they would not hearken. So God even sent prophets, warned them, but they would not hear. So what did God bring upon this wicked covenant breaker? Verse 11, Wherefore the Lord brought upon them the captains of the host, the king of Assyria, which took Manasseh among the thorns and bound him with fetters and carried him to Babylon. This was the judgment God brought upon Manasseh, took him into captivity in Assyria. But is that the end of the story? No, that's not the end of the story. This covenant breaker who had done more wickedness in all of Judah than probably all who preceded him doesn't even compare him to, to the to any of the wicked kings that preceded him it compares him to the heathen and the abominations he performed this most wicked king while in captivity turned to the Lord his God and repented of his sin as we read and the Lord restored him. As we continue reading in verse 12. And when he was in affliction, he besought the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers and prayed unto him. And he was entreated of him and heard his supplication and brought him again to Jerusalem into his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord, he was God. Now after this he built a wall without the city of David on the west side of Gihon in the valley, even to the entering in at the fish gate, and compassed about Ophel, and raised it up a very great height, and put captains of war in all the fenced cities of Judah. And he took away the strange gods and the idol out of the house of the Lord, and all the altars that he had built in the mount of the house of the Lord, and in Jerusalem, and cast them out of the city, and repaired the altar of the Lord, and sacrificed there on peace offerings and thank offerings and commanded Judah to serve the Lord God of Israel nevertheless the people did sacrifice still in the high places yet unto the Lord their God only the Lord did bring about mighty reformation the high places about Jerusalem were were not Torn down, as with other uh, uh, kings that were that were uh, uh, faithful in in uh, in following the Lord, they did right, but they did not carry reformation to the point that they should have. Uh, likewise, they served the Lord; they worshipped to the Lord in these high places, these various altars and places around Jerusalem, rather than. As God said, there being only one altar that ought to be used, that it was the altar in the temple. But yet, we see such a reformation and such a, a blessedness that God brought upon Manasseh when he turned to the Lord. Dear ones, his turning to the Lord, his turning to the Lord was not based upon his righteousness. It was based upon the future obedience of Jesus Christ, the covenant keeper. The one who has kept covenant for all of us. Manasseh could not have kept the covenant, could not have kept God's law to the point that God would have been ever happy with Manasseh. It was on the basis of Manasseh turning to the Lord as God and trusting in that future covenant keeper, the Lord Jesus Christ, who has kept that covenant in the covenant of grace for all of his people. And so I close today with simply that note of hope and encouragement that where we have failed to keep God's covenant, we have all failed to do so in thought, word, or deed, individually, collectively, The Lord promises to us that he will restore us unto himself as a faithful covenant people as we do embrace Jesus Christ, our covenant keeper, and as we do endeavor new obedience to walk in all of his ways. He is ever, he is ever faithful and merciful. May the Lord have mercy us upon us all, even as he had mercy upon Manasseh. Let us stand in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, our hearts are greatly lifted up and do rejoice as we consider thy kindness and thy mercy to King Manasseh. For Lord, to varying degrees we have all fallen into Sins which, Lord, Thou could judge and could send, Lord, uh, our enemies upon us to lead us into captivity. And indeed, O oh Lord, to varying degrees and various ways, we have been led into kinds of captivity due to our following other gods or following our pleasures and our the lusts of our flesh. We pray, our Father, that Thou would would uh, at this point cast this upon the Lord Jesus Christ, who is indeed our covenant keeper, who is the last Adam. Whereas Adam did not keep that covenant for us, but did sin, and we sinned in him and fell with him. So, O oh Lord, we hear wondrously in the New Testament, even so, As all die in Adam, so all in Christ shall be made alive. And so, Lord, we we do praise thee and thank thee and pray that thou would renew, help us to renew our covenant with thee and renew all of those covenants by which we are engaged. All those lawful covenants that are agreeable to thy word, help us, O Lord, to, to engage ourselves in them, to be faithful to them, to walk in them all the days of our lives. And we ask, Lord, uh,
1: this to the name of Christ, our Savior. Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. T-6-L-3-T-5 You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7:31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to His commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves